Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage Podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage Podcast, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and subject matter experts who explore the intersection between strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. Now to our regular listeners, thank you so much for coming back. And if it's your first time here, we really appreciate you joining us. So today we're gonna be discussing China. And as you know, Mitchell Institute's own Daniel Rice is our China expert. So with that, I'd like to hand off the stick to Dan for this episode. Dan, it's always great to have you back on the show. Hey Slick, thanks for the intro. And it's always great to be on the podcast. So you're right. Today, we're going to be talking about China, but more specifically, we're going to be talking about the Chinese People's Liberation Army's incursions into Taiwan's Air Defense Identification Zone, or what we call an ADIS. Now, bottom line here, it's no secret that Taiwan is a potential flashpoint for conflict between China and the U.S. And as some of our listeners might have seen in the headlines, since around 2019, China has been sending an increasing number of aircraft into Taiwan's ADIS on a nearly daily basis. So much so, in fact, that at this point in time, it takes an exceptionally large number of aircraft crossing into Taiwan's ADIS to even warrant reporting on the topic. And this is a real threat. So what I want to do in today's discussion is to try to give our audience a clear sight picture of what is actually going on with these sorties. Why is China conducting these missions? What effects are the sorties having on both the PLA as well as Taiwan? And how can we address this issue moving into the future? So to dive into these questions, we have an amazing team with us here today. First, I'd like to welcome back Ken Allen. Ken served in the Air Force for 21 years as a Russia and China linguist and intelligence officer. Most recently, he served as the Director of Research at Air University's China Aerospace Studies Institute. And as some of our listeners might remember, he co-authored the book, 70 Years of the PLA Air Force, which we discussed on a previous episode of the podcast. So welcome back to the Aerospace Advantage, Ken. Thank you. Looking forward to doing this today and having our article actually published by Rutledge here in a couple of months. Next, we have Gerald Brown who is a defense analyst with Valiant Integrated Services and previously served with the Air Force Security Services. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having us on. Also joining us today is Thomas Shattuck, a program manager at the University of Pennsylvania's Perry World House and previous deputy director of the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Asia program. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation today. Now, you all just co-authored a chapter on the PLAAF's incursions into Taiwan's ADIS in the upcoming book, Modernizing the People's Liberation Army, Aspiring to be a Global Military Power. And there are some really interesting details that I want to dive into, but I'd like to start off with some big picture questions to help our audience understand the importance of what is happening here. So to kick us off, Ken, can you describe for our audience what Taiwan's aid is, looks like, and why? And what are some of its characteristics that make it unique? Thanks. First of all, for anyone listening to the podcast today, I would like to recommend that you start by Googling Taiwan aid is. And when that comes up, then click on images, and you'll see all the images of, of the different aid is portions. So that way you'll have an idea of what we're talking about. The United Nations International Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO, 
defines an ADIS as a special designated airspace of defined dimensions within which aircraft are required to comply with special identification and or reporting procedures additional to those related to the provision of air traffic service. However, while ICAO defines an ADIS, it does not define procedures or practices for the establishment and operation of an ADIS. No international regulations or consensus exist describing the establishment or operation of an ADIS that every country must adhere to. The U.S. was the first country to establish an ADIS, doing so in 1950. Following that, it established ADIS throughout the 1950s in Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and the Philippines. Of note, Taiwan's ADIS covers most of Fujian province and southern half of Zhejiang province, as you can see on the maps. The bottom line is that the rules and regulations vary from state to state. While breaching a country's ADIS presents security risks to that country and may increase risks of escalation, such actions do not constitute a violation of a country's territorial airspace. While countries are not restricted from flying in an ADIS under international law, the country possessing the ADIS may opt to scramble military aircraft to escort and identify the intruding aircraft and ensure that it does not enter that country's territorial airspace. Concerning the center line of the Taiwan Strait, it traces back to the days of the U.S. and Republic of China, ROC, Mutual Defense Treaty in 1954, and it serves two purposes. First, it was to prevent a large-scale confrontation between the two sides of the Taiwan Strait, and second, it was to keep Chiang Kai-shek from trying to retake the mainland since it might involve the U.S. in another war. A particular note, however, is that, as you can see on the image in center lines, the center line does not extend all the way to the end of the ADIS in either direction. That's the real key issue here. As Gerald points out, only a few sorties have crossed the actual center line, while all other sorties have flown into the southwestern portion of the ADIS. Of note to also is that no sorties have flown to the northern portion. Yeah, thank you, Ken. Thanks for that excellent background. And so often when we talk about Chinese military strategy, we discuss the so-called strategic directions that China has. And these are critically important areas or regions that China has identified as key to focusing their military efforts on to maintain their national security. Above all of these, Taiwan has consistently been the number one strategic direction for the PLA. So Chinese Communist Party General Secretary Xi Jinping has also made it very clear from his policies that unifying China and Taiwan, either peacefully or by force if necessary, is absolutely critical to achieving the CCP's goals of the great rejuvenation of China. So Tom, you spent almost three years in Taiwan. What are some of the other political considerations from the Taiwanese side of the strait that might help explain why China has been ramping up its incursions into Taiwan's aid is? Yeah, there are a number of political factors that explain the increase in the incursions into Taiwan's aid is. Since President Tsai Ing-wen took office in 2016, Taiwan has garnered much more international attention. There are a lot more political officials in Taiwan taking international trips than ever before, particularly with Europe in the last couple of years. We've also seen the consolidation of informal relationships that Taipei has with both Washington and Tokyo. So in 2021, we saw 21 days in which Beijing sent 10 or more aircraft into Taiwan's ADIS, and that's what for our chapter we consider a large-scale incursion. So these incursions generally occur in response to a major Taiwan-related political or economic event. Two examples worth citing are after the G7 last year in the communique that was released by all parties, 
immediately afterwards, Beijing sent 28 aircraft into Taiwan's ages. It was a very huge incursion. It was a huge operation that was very much in response to the international support and concern that the G7 had about peace and security in the Taiwan Strait. Then another example in September 2021, after Taiwan applied to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Beijing sent 24 aircraft into Taiwan's ages. And that was actually done a week after Beijing itself made its same application to the CPTPP. So it was, again, in response to something that was related to Taiwan, what we consider a pro-Taiwan event. And these incursions are meant to serve as a form of punishment. Whether or not Taipei had a specific role or even any agency in said event, Beijing used the ADIS as a mechanism to show its displeasure. So for applying to the CPTPP, that was Taiwan making a decision and Beijing responding. But with the G7, Taiwan was not at the meeting. Taiwan had no say in that, but Taiwan was punished for that event. So for its part, the Tsai administration hasn't let this threat, specifically the ages threat, um, deter it from conducting its very complicated way of conducting diplomacy around the world. So, Tom, Taiwan regularly conducts polls on the attitudes of the Taiwanese people on their willingness to defend the island in the event of a Chinese forceful unification. And I've tracked this from the outside, and it seems to me that slowly over time and with more aggressive actions out of China, that the willingness of the people to fight back has slowly started to erode. So, Tom, is this really the case? You know, from your experience in Taiwan and from the Taiwanese perspective, what effect are these incursions into Taiwan's aid is having on public sentiment on the island? And how might this factor into a potential military conflict between China and Taiwan? So the last time I was in Taiwan was January 2020, right before COVID hit uh, for the presidential election in Taipei. And every time I go, I speak to grad students in a seminar. And the class is a mix of some foreign students and Taiwanese students. And I ask them the question of how worried are you about China and the potential of a Chinese invasion? And it was a class of about 20 students no one expressed much worry at all. They were just going about their lives, studying for tests, writing papers. It seemed to be the same attitude from when I was in Taiwan um, a few years before, and the attitude really hadn't changed and that no one really thinks about it. And specifically within the ages context, it's not really considered a huge deal anymore because it just happens all the time. So to freak out daily about this issue is would just be so taxing on your mental state that it's just something that you know, part of the cross-strait status quo, it gets reported now and then when a big incursion happens. But it's the edges issue within Taipei, at least, isn't really considered with the citizenry a huge deal to worry about. Um, the key point that I'm really interested in seeing is what effect will the Ukraine conflict have on Taiwan and its people? Like we, we know Taiwan does not have a reserve program, and it doesn't really have any civil defense program. This regular people aren't being called up and trained in any way to uh, fight any sort of war or invasion against China. Um, but will that change with Ukraine? Will the polling in particular change? Will we see a rise in people willing to defend Taiwan 
after seeing the Ukrainian people rise up and mobilize against a larger enemy that they were not supposed to be able to defeat or push back in any way. So the bottom line is that Taipei and the Taiwanese people will really need to take these lessons from Ukraine and implement them in Taiwan to have a shot. Because if the Taiwanese people aren't properly trained or they don't even want to fight, then there could be doubts in what commitment the U.S. may decide to have against uh, China in an invasion scenario. And we saw with Biden's remarks in Tokyo recently that he believes the U.S. has a commitment. And this is the third time that he said that the United States has a commitment. And while in the TRA, the Taiwan Relations Act, and in the Six Assurances, we're not obligated in any sort of security guarantee to defend Taiwan, but at least President Biden, it seems recently, believes that under his administration that the U.S. would get involved. And there were doubts about that uh, as the Ukraine conflict started. What would the United States do to help Taiwan since China is allegedly a much more competent military power than Russia? So we'll see how these developments occur. But the Taiwan has some work to do on its own while the United States needs to do its own planning and investing in the military in the Pacific before the two can kind of make a decision privately, we'll say, about what role the U.S. may have in this invasion scenario. Something I've raised before with other people is is there a poll in the United States to see if Americans would support defending Taiwan? There is. The Chicago Council in August 2021 released a poll, and I believe it's 52% of Americans support sending troops to defend Taiwan, and over 60% Uh, actually are in favor of recognizing Taiwan as an independent nation. So there seems to be growing support in the U.S. to get involved as Taiwan is kind of, it's not exactly sure what the effect of the Ukraine war will have since the polling is slowly going down in the citizenry, but there's an appetite, a very slim majority for sending U.S. troops uh, to defend Taiwan. But again, we'll see what the Ukraine conflict has. I hope the Chicago Council does a follow-up poll uh, over the summer to see if there's any change over time with that. The second part to the question is always this. Would the U.S. defend Taiwan if Taiwan is the one who instigated the conflict or if the PRC instigated the conflict? And I've talked to people and I get different answers. Yeah, to follow up with Ken, I, I agree. I think... If Taiwan were to declare independence, then the United States would probably stay out um, because then that would be the fears of the 90s and 2000s coming to fruition in the 2020s that Taiwan starts this conflict. However, I don't think Taiwan will be declaring independence anytime soon. But I do believe that if Taiwan is the one that makes the first step, then the United States will probably very well say, you started this, we're not getting involved. Great. Thank you for that. So, Jerry, you have created a database tracking Chinese incursions into Taiwan's ADIS, which goes into a lot of great detail on the location, timing, and aircraft involved in these sorties, and other really important data points. So what are some of the big trends that stand out to you from the data? Yeah, uh, so honestly, there's quite a bit we can pull from this. Uh, The fact that Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense made this public has uh, really given us a, a nice little window into the uh, PLA that's available in the open source. Uh, so, so one point uh, is just you mentioned the kind of the scope and scale. Uh, as Ken highlighted, there weren't really any incursions into the 80s or across the uh, median line until really the late 1990s, and then after that, it stopped off again. Right? Uh, there was a brief incursion across the center line in 
2014. But short of that, there wasn't really anything until uh, 2019. Now, there were other things, like as throughout the 2000s, they started sending incursions into uh, Japan's air defense identification zone, which started kind of like picking up around uh, 2010, if I remember correctly. And then also around 2016, they started circumnavigational flights around way outside of the Aedes, but around Taiwan, and then also through South Korea's air defense identification zone. But into Taiwan's air defense identification, that started in 2019. And that was around 10 to 20 flights. They haven't released specific numbers, but it was somewhere within that range. And then that started improving, uh, not improving, uh, started to grow in 2020 with uh, about around 380 flights. And then 2021, that was all the way up to 972. And so far, the data we have for 2022 is uh, showing pretty similar scale, right? It's not really showing any sign of decreasing anytime soon. Uh, so, well, but going through this as well, like, uh, there's a lot of little details about, like, where the flights are occurring and things along those lines, right? Uh, what kind of aircraft as opposed to just, like, pure numbers. And we're able to pull a lot of, uh, interesting, uh, little things by basing this in different categories of aircraft, what they're flying with, and things like that with the way that we sorted the data in here. One of the things we were able to really take here is we were able to kind of divide all these incursions into three different categories. Like Tom mentioned, there were 21 days where, like, large incursions occurred of, like, 10 or more aircraft, right, in 2021. But, uh, most of them are, there were 240 days in 2021 where some kind of aircraft entered the air defense identification zone. And most of the time, it's just a single aircraft or two aircraft. It's very few. And those don't really serve as much of a political purpose as much as an operational purpose. And this is the uh, probably the most prevalent one that we see is this operational rationale behind these sorties. And this is things like anti-submarine warfare aircraft tracking uh, submarines. Uh, so you'll see like these YA aircraft uh, kind of fly through the same region where they're monitoring the South China Sea Slope, right? And uh, Ali Swarcer actually has some really good work on this in The Diplomat as well, where he's kind of showing like the patterns and corresponding them with like, uh, you know, like naval sea lines of communication and the South China Sea Slope where submarines would have to kind of come up into excellent submarine hunting ground, right? So if you're trying to interdict submarines and track them, then that's the place to do it, right? Uh, additionally, like just intelligence flights, uh, you can go over and like gather like, you know, information on Taiwan's military, their response time, things along those lines, right? Uh, so there's been a lot of uh, stuff on that vein. Additionally, there's just a training side to this, right? So things like a joint force training focus, it's been increasing a lot under a, one of Xi Jinping's big initiatives, right, is to increase joint training between the services. And we've seen this with things like maritime strike training, uh, aerial refueling operations, uh, helicopter operations even. So we've been seeing recently even the PLA Army has been getting involved in this and having joint training between the services, right? So that's been a huge initiative here too. And then as Tom pointed out, there's just this political side as well. That would be the uh, third rationale that I'd kind of uh, – prescribed to these uh, different flights, right? And there's really, there's an overall political objective, obviously, but then really those large sorties that are kind of like focused around pl key political events that are either perceived as pro-Taiwan or Beijing might perceive as a slight to its one China principle, basically. So Jerry, can you go into a little bit more detail on exactly what different types of platforms do you see married together when conducting these missions? And even is there a difference between the People's Liberation Army Air Force and People's Liberation Army Navy aviation units that are involved in these sorties? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So there, there's a wide variety of different kinds of aircraft that we're seeing, and it kind of depends on what the mission is, right? So uh, the, way, the way we separate this in the chapter is I've sorted things in the combat aircraft and these are your fighters, tactical aircraft, like you know, multiple striker, bomber, all that all that fun stuff, right? Uh, and then also the special mission aircraft and support aircraft, right? And this is the so more recently the combat aircraft have become a little more common, but those are also concentrated on a very few numbers of days and like, you know, a little more 
political oriented a lot and training oriented a lot of the time, whereas the special mission aircraft typically have the more of the operational role. And these are things like the anti-submarine warfare aircraft I mentioned before, uh, AWACS, electronic warfare, electronic intelligence, maritime reconnaissance, and even uh, there was one tanker aircraft in 2021, which is a, a new development, right? Uh, and so they fly in a variety of different patterns. Uh, like some of the more interesting ones is there's been a huge focus on like joint training, like you mentioned, the PLA Navy and the PLA Air Force. Uh, sometimes it's hard to tell, right? Because the Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense doesn't tell us that this is uh, a naval aircraft or if this is an Air Force aircraft. But we can, there's certain airframes that are only with one or the other right now, right? And one of those is the J-16. Uh, J-16H will eventually be incorporated into the PLA Navy. Uh, I have not yet. Right, so when we see a J-16, we know that that's Air Force. If we see an ASW aircraft, then that's going to be Navy, right? So we've seen certain instances of like what looks like maritime strike training, right, where you have the uh, KQ-200, the uh, ASW aircraft, basically going out, and you'll see flying with two J-16s, basically. It looks like, you know, like tracking things, determining coordinates, sending those to the J-16s, which are striker aircraft, right, to engage in maritime strike. Uh, other things, you know, we've seen... For instance, the uh, tanker aircraft that I mentioned, the uh, Y-20U, uh, flew out. There was one day that there was this large thing where it's kind of like uh, flying alongside two J-16. This is coming out of Central Command, too, which is a little bit deeper inland, right? Uh, so very specific, like, training for, you know, being able to conduct aerial refueling operations, which is uh, also, in a sense, this is the only time that we've seen that, right? So it also kind of demonstrates there are certain areas that are pretty essential to a lot of the aviation operations that you'd need to really be proficient in to engage in a lot of operations within the space that they're just kind of getting started on, right? So while, for instance, the naval and the missile forces are pretty advanced at the PLA, it looks like certain aspects of the aviation side are still lagging behind, but they're also increasing pretty rapidly. When you have a KJ-500 Airborne Early Warning and Command aircraft, typically you have somebody in there who's talking to the fighters. But there's a lot of fighter sorties where there's no KJ-500 in the air. So the question is, let's say you've got two J-16s out there and no KJ-500. Who are they talking to? And that's a real key issue. The sorties are nice, but you've got to boil it down to who are they talking to, who's telling them what to do, and all those kinds of things. So the uh, the KJ-500 point also brings up an interesting thing, right? The Part of the limitations of the data is Taiwan only shows what went into its air defense identification zone, right? So if I'm looking at this large thing of sorties, anything that is sitting just outside of it, we're not going to see on the open source, right? And this is potentially a data gap with the KJ-500. Typically, the KJ-500s are present with a larger gathering of uh, different sorties. Uh, but the KJ-500 is always the farthest south, almost always, right? It's farther away from the action, so to speak. But sometimes that means it's just touching the very tip. So on some of these larger sorties where we don't see a KJ-500, it might just be there. It might just be in, like, you know, just outside, just south of the air defense identification zone. But we have no way of knowing that. Uh, another one, like, for instance, just a, just a couple days ago, actually, there was one where the KJ-500 is the farthest north. Right, the whole pattern is reversed, but that looks like oh maybe this is something geared more towards South China Sea. It's geared farther south, and you know some of these uh, like aircraft they're drilling something outside. It's not really Taiwan related, but they're going to go into the air defense identification zone to drill this, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I know that our own U.S. Air Force has practiced for decades on how to incorporate that command and control in the air with our own fighters. So it's a really good indication of how they're training and getting the experience to do that. So. Jerry, there's been a lot of speculation over what a Chinese military campaign against Taiwan might look like. And generally speaking, it involves either various military actions against the main island of Taiwan or against Taiwan's periphery islands. And these islands include Nangan Island off the coast of Fuzhou, 
Kinmen next to China's Xiamen or the Pratas Islands in the South China Sea. And it seems logical to me that if China were to take military action against Taiwan, that the Pratas Islands would make a lot of strategic sense. But Jerry, uh, can you talk to us about the data that you found from these sorties and the types of aircrafts and locations of these sorties very specifically? Does this data give any insight into what scenario China might actually be preparing or planning for? Yeah, uh, so the, the unfortunate answer is not that much, uh, which is, is one of the limitations, right? Like uh, most of the training that we've seen would be relevant in really any of these scenarios, right? Uh, this does give me a little bit of opportunity to kind of touch on the locations. Uh, so one of the things, like, for instance, the Air Defense Identification Zone, uh, Ken mentioned, you know, goes over parts of the uh, Fushan province, right? At the same time, that's not what we're talking about with this, right? So all these incursions are really going into uh, towards the, uh, the Bashi Strait. Basically, if you take the median line, which if you pulled it up on Google, uh, if you just take that median line and you kind of uh, keep it going like that south uh, western direction, you keep it kind of going the logic way down, then all the incursions are really incurring in between that area, border of the air defense identification zone and the border of the median line. They're going through past that line and then into this area, like just a little bit to the side of uh, Dongcha and uh, these other areas in the South China Sea. And some of them are actually even going to the uh, southeastern portion, right, uh, which is a little unusual. Uh, it's not common that this happens, but uh, especially like we see this a lot with uh, sometimes bomber and uh, anti-submarine warfare aircraft. Uh, anti-submarine warfare aircraft, it looks like it's kind of like following uh, sea lines of communication coming out of Isakusa. Uh, and then bombers probably drilling for, like, you know, some kind of eastern side of Taiwan scenario, right? It looks a little bit more training and signaling oriented. Uh, but, and then obviously, like I said, mentioned earlier, right, we're limited on data. If it's outside the air defense certification, then we don't see it, uh, which is a gap there. Uh, and unfortunate, but uh, most of them are kind of right within that region there. Uh, so the, the other area that some of them have crossed, and this hasn't happened in 2021. This actually just happened for the first time in a while in 2022 again, uh, but the crossings of the center line themselves. So according to Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense, 49 different sorties crossed the center line in 2020. That's out of the 380-so flights. Uh, since the data has been released to the public in September of 2020, there were only uh, two crossings. That's like the 18th and 19th, uh, these large-scale incursions that went across the center line. And this is a little more concerning to Taiwan, right? It's the proximity is a lot closer. This is just coming directly at the uh, main island there. But that stopped after September. Uh, throughout all of 2021, there was zero incursions going there. They were all in the southwestern and occasionally the southeastern portion of the air defense identification zone. And uh, then recently in 2022, uh, just a few weeks ago, actually, there was a single incursion of a uh, PLA Army helicopter actually going across the uh, center line. That looks like we were sending a uh, vessel through the Taiwan Strait at that same point. It looks like it was kind of in response to that. But it dropped off and it hasn't been happening. So it's pretty much all been concentrated in that southwestern portion. Great, thanks. So, Ken, last time that we had you on the podcast, you and Dr. Brendan Mulvaney discussed how China is yet to really have an overseas military capability, but that they're aggressively pursuing this. And I've gone through the data on the PLAF's aircraft inventories, and it appears that they're building up their heavy airlift capacity, as well as modernizing their fighters. But as you know, just having the platforms doesn't mean that the personnel behind them have the training, tactics, techniques, and procedures to execute these mission sets. So with the incursions into Taiwan's aid is, 
What have these sorties achieved when it comes to the Chinese military personnel involved in the sorties? And has increasing the number of sorties done anything to help China build its military expertise to conduct overseas missions or built up any specific operational experience? Thanks, Daniel. Using the book, The 70 Years of the Peel Air Force, as a basis, what you need to do is look at a unit. So let's say, for the heck of it, that the Peel Air Force sends aircraft to a foreign airfield. And let's say that it's on the coast of Africa, just to pick a place. So now you have to boil this down. How many aircraft, how are they organized, what do they do, and all those kinds of things. So I'm going to assume if they send 10 airframes, that's called a flight group. The flight group is divided into two flight squadrons. Each flight squadron has five airframes. So let's say that they send a flight group, those 10 airframes. Now they have to have personnel to support them. In the Peel Air Force, every airframe has a dedicated ground crew of logistics and maintenance officers enlisted of maybe up to seven people. So let's say they send 10 aircraft to this airfield. They have to send 70 support personnel to it as well. And as a general rule, uh, it's called the Outline of Military Training and Evaluation. That defines how the Peel Air Force does all their training. So every unit, let's say that it's a J-16 unit. The J-16 unit has to follow the OMTE and they are given X number of hours for the whole year. The commander takes those hours, divides them up among the pilots, and then, as a general rule, pilots fly 150 hours a year. That's roughly one flight every three days. That's how it boils, one hour every three days. And then maintenance on the aircraft. And if they're on the border, I, have, I actually had an opportunity when I was stationed in Beijing to go to an engine repair facility. And the head of that facility, he says, take a look at this airframe or this air engine and tell me what you see. I said, I don't know. He says, it's pitted with sea salt. So if it's on the border, the question is, is the PLA Air Force going in and cleaning this airframe, fixing the engine? I have done a research on this, and I've never found a single article I'm talking about doing this. This is a real key issue. So you've got to boil this down and say, if you're going to, are you getting the right kinds of training? Is it navigation? What are you doing? Am I sitting strip alert every day? One of the things I'd like to drive home, too, is we look at the total number of sorties, you know, over, what, 1,500 sorties, roughly, something like that, whatever it is. And we say, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, lots of sorties, sorties. Now you start breaking this down by airframe. For example, so far we have roughly 580 sorties by J-16s since September 2020. In 2021, we had 316 J-16 sorties. A J-16 is a two-seat aircraft, so there's two pilots per airframe. And there's 1.2 pilots per seat. So you do all the math on this, and there's th- roughly 90 aircraft in three brigades, three J-16 brigades, opposite Taiwan. And you do this, and there's roughly 216 pilots. So you take 216, you divide it into the 316 sorties, you're only getting one sortie every three months per pilot. And this is a roughly a two-hour flight out, two-hour flight back. So now it's pure navigation, going out, going back. Um, I'm doing this. Am I reaching my OMT requirements? Am I doing all this? So again, you break this down pilot by pilot by pilot. And on the bomber side, only one out of every three pilots is getting a sortie in an 8-6. So again, numbers are impressive, but you'd break it down pilot by pilot by pilot. And how often do they fly? And let's say that I give Jerry 10 sorties. That means I have to take seven of those sorties away from Daniel. So again, you have to boil this down and get away from some of the hardware part of it and break it down into the people side. Yeah, and it's a point taken well that it's all about the the people behind that platform, not just the platform itself. So on the flip side here, and this is for the group, 
what effect have these sorties had on the Taiwanese military at the tactical level? You know, between the maintenance, like you mentioned, Ken, but from the Taiwanese side, uh, and also the aircraft from the Taiwanese side, there must be some tangible effects on the Taiwanese readiness level in the event of conflict. I'll jump in to start. Um, there's the most obvious effect or change in how has been in how Taiwan's military responds to the sorties. Um, so in March 2021, after several months of these incursions where the Taiwanese military would intercept every single aircraft, Taipei decided to stop sending its own aircraft to intercept every single sortie. Um, the costs were getting too high um, for the Ta Taiwan's military. The budget couldn't handle it. Between fuel and maintenance, um, the military would have gone broke just intercepting these um, Chinese aircraft. So they had to make a decision on how to change their approach to these incursions. So now they track the aircraft with surface-to-air missiles and just issue a general radio warning. They still do intercept certain ones, but it's unclear to us, like we tried to find the information, how many and which ones cause it. I would guess that the larger ones warrant um an intercept and like anyone that crosses the center line of the Taiwan Strait, I would imagine has a response with a Taiwanese aircraft in the air. So they've definitely, the Chinese military has definitely shown that it can outspend and outresource Taiwan's military because very quickly Taiwan had to adapt the way it responded to the incursions. So Tom just mentioned in March they started stopped responding to every incursion, but earlier than that, uh, October of 2020 actually, uh, they started adjusting it just based on how high the cost. This is one of the few times that we have like numbers on how the actual uh, toll has been. Uh, so in October of 2020, they were initially they were sending for each incursion, whether it be anti-submarine warfare aircraft or anything along those lines, they were sending in uh, basically always with like fighter, some kind of combat aircraft, right? So they, st they started to adjust that a little bit then before they stopped responding to everything. So they send basically if it was a slow moving aircraft, like, you know, like, and electronic intelligence aircraft and like that, and they would send a similar Taiwanese slow-moving aircraft to uh, make it a little bit more affordable. Because at that point, uh, according to Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense, they had uh, spent already 8.7% of their entire defense budget for that year just on responding to these sorties with combat aircraft, right? So the uh, like kind of uh, wear and tear and the cost in the Taiwanese Air Force was, was quite substantial. My understanding is that a couple of Taiwan Air Force aircraft have crashed in the last year or so. Not in response to the sorties and the aid is, but that is an issue for the Taiwan Air Force as well. Yeah, I mean, it really kind of, and like, you know, obviously it's speculative to try to correlate that too much with this, uh, like, you know, whether, but like, there was a lot heavier load on Taiwanese Air Force for sure, right, <laughs> responding to this all the time. So when you kind of see like, oh, there's several more fatal crashes and like, you know, challenges like that, it certainly seems like it's wearing down on the uh, Taiwanese Air Force in general, which is why they're adjusting, obviously. On the Taiwanese side too, their F-16s, the standard metric is for every one hour of flying, you have roughly 17 hours of maintenance. So it is, it's a, it's a huge issue, especially if they're taking one hour sorties out, that's 17 hours on the ground, burning the maintenance crew, burning resources. It really adds up pretty quickly. Concerning the Peel Air Force, all the research that I've done, it's basically for every flying day, the next day those aircraft go into maintenance. And as I mentioned, they're only getting one sortie, one, one hour sortie, basically every right. three days. And in 2014, the Peel Air Force's magazine had a 20-page article on aircraft maintenance. They're talking about an 18-hour day for the maintenance crew for a single day of flying. Are they going to be able to do that every day? 
So just understanding how the, the PLATH and the plan conduct these sorties is not enough. We need something operational and tactical that we can take away from this so that we can address this issue set. So from your perspectives, can you tell our audience why this all matters and maybe even why it's happening right now? It matters um, just on the face of it that this is a very public way that for China to demonstrate its military capabilities, that they have the hardware to do some sort of incursion, blockade, um, invasion, um, and they're training for it. They're training to do something eventually against Taiwan. And as Gerald and Ken have discussed throughout the podcast, the visions of that training and the operational benefit um, to them. So when we do these, when we analyze and we study these things, um, it's critical to have these discussions at a basic level in order to deter the Chinese aggression because it's putting out in the public and providing data to people who may not be able to acquire it, who may not know what to do with it, um, making it public and explaining why this matters, why it's a huge issue um, in particular for Taiwan. And why is it happening now? I think the balance in the Taiwan Strait is obviously tilting towards China and China is not just going to sit around with all of its military hardware and do nothing with it. They're going to need to use it. And where would they use it? They're going to use it in a place that they may potentially be using it in a live scenario. So focusing on the southwestern ages between the Pratas Island and Taiwan proper um, is probably a key area where any sort of invasion would happen um, and choking off the straits uh, for any type of U.S. action to come through. So it's happening now, one, because China can do it. It couldn't do it really at this scale before. And now Taiwan isn't able to respond in the way that it did. So it's kind of the flip side of this one coin is before Taiwan had the capabilities that China did not have. And now the balance has shifted. Now China can do these things and Taiwan is not able to. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, it's at its core, it's indicative of a more confident and a more assertive people's liberation army, right? Uh, they're gaining a lot of training benefit. And like we said, like a lot of the training that we've seen, it's it's rudimentary, right? The PLA, uh, PLA aviation especially is not quite where it wants to be, right? But it's getting there. And we were able to see in real time that it's getting there fast. Right? It's getting a lot better. It's yep. uh, like The operations are becoming more sophisticated. There is these joint training focus between the services to kind of like be able to really start drilling what they would need to – uh, really engage in any operations within the first island chain, right? Uh, so this is as the PLA becomes more confident in it and it starts to improve its capabilities and we're just seeing more and more willingness to gain these operational benefits such as gathering intelligence on Taiwan, uh, tracking submarines within this area, like, you know, more confidence in there and then just more ability to develop itself with these different training operations and trying things like refueling operations throughout like, you know, the first island chains, things along these lines, right, where they're becoming more prevalent. The PLA is starting to practice these more, and the aviation side's always been kind of lagging behind. That's that's pretty well known, right? The, there's a large focus on like missile forces, naval side. They're they're though they're much more sophisticated than a lot of the aviation side. But the aviation side is improving, right? They're not there yet, but they are improving, and this is more or less indicative of that. I like to use sports analogies for looking at things like this. So think of two pro teams. What do they do before they play? They go out and observe each other. They send out people to watch what they do. They look at offense, defense, plays, everything that they do, no matter what. So in my personal opinion, I think the U.S. Air Force and Taiwan Air Force have probably learned more about the PLA Air Force since these sorties began than we did before. Because now we can watch them from the time they take off 
until they come together, their altitude, how long does it take them to get out there, how long does it take them to go back. If you look at imagery, what did they do the day before, the day after, all of these things. I think we've learned more about this. At the same time, though, the Peel Air Force will probably learn more about the Taiwan Air Force. So you've got to balance this out. So in a way, I think this is not a bad thing for us because I think we're learning a lot more about them than we did, say, two, three years ago. Yeah, and if I had to add one thing on this, too, is that immediately prior to Desert Storm, one of the things that the U.S. did in order to desensitize the population in Iraq was to fly sorties close to the border consistently every single day until the actual strike. So while I don't want it to sound you know, war-scaring or warmongering or anything like that, I think there is absolutely a metric of that involved in this. By conducting consistent sorties, it just opens up that window of surprise when if they do decide to make a strike, they can just carry on what appears to be a routine sortie right to the actual target set. So I know we're running short on time on this episode, but I do have one last question for everyone. So what can the U.S. and Taiwan do to address the increase in Chinese aggression or even prepare for it, specifically when it comes to these kinds of sorties into Taiwan's aid is? I'll take a stab at it. Uh, it's really hard, right? And I do not have a good answer on that. And that's, the, that's the sad truth. It's the million-dollar question, right? Yeah, see, if, if we can solve it, then, you know, Nobel Prize is all around, right? Oh, no, this is hard. This is... This is more of that, like, uh, beneath the threshold of armed conflict, but still uh, very concerning military pressure on Taiwan, right? Like uh, like Ken mentioned, this isn't into Taiwan's territorial airspace. This is the air defense identification zone, which is threatening and concerning, but not the same as, you know, flying within the 12 uh, nautical miles off of Taiwan. That would be its territorial airspace, right? But this is a nice way for it to kind of... Uh, put pressure within this kind of a gray area here. And so it's, it's not an easy way to respond to it, right? If you go over and you start flying too many sorties and you're going to wear down your Air Force, uh, largely I think that it kind of comes down to ensuring the more concerning operations. You have a way to respond to that, right? Which is obviously an actual kinetic military operation, uh, invasion of Taiwan or invasion of one of the outlying islands, right? Which I think comes down to on Taiwanese side, a lot more focus on more asymmetric weapon systems, a huge focus on air defense. Uh, There's a wonderful RAND report from a few years ago, kind of tying into Taiwan's air defense operations uh, and options on that, right? that that's huge, right? You need a lot of small scattered systems, anti-ship missile things along those lines that you need to really kind of have a focus on to make sure that all right, you can fly around an air defense identification zone, but you can't actually uh, you can't you can't succeed in an operation here, right? Uh, on the U.S. side, and that's a lot more. I mean, we've been moving to the Pacific for I don't know how many years now, but I'm I still haven't seen it, right? So uh, things like, for instance, Marine Corps Force Design 2030 is huge, uh, right? Like naval. Uh, like ship numbers and on those lines, uh, still building the uh, ships that we need to actually move around Marines. You know, I'd like to actually see that come through on the Air Force side, the uh, ACE program, Agile Combat Employment. Uh, that's huge, right? Uh, things like this where we're able to have a really good foot in the Pacific, operate within uh, Chinese missile uh, ranges and be able to like disperse and be able to engage effectively there, as well as just multilateralizing the problem, right? Uh, Japan's recent statements, along with Australia, said they'd be willing to stand behind us and support Taiwan. Those are huge, right? There's one, if you're trying to deter the PLA from actually making any kind of kinetic action against Taiwan, then, you know, China versus Taiwan is one thing versus their calculus if it's China versus Taiwan, the United States, Japan, and Australia. That's a whole different ballgame, right? And if we can kind of multilateralize that problem and continue supporting Taiwan in this, then I think that's huge and to ultimately preserve peace in the Taiwan Strait. This is a really interesting question. I'm not a policy person. I was just sitting here thinking about this. 
When I was at PACAF from 1982 to 85, I believe it was 83, PACAF had a huge exercise. They put over 200 aircraft in the air out of the Philippines, out of Guam, out of Alaska, Japan, Korea. And they flew it through the East China Sea, into the Sea of Japan and around, and it scared the shit out of everybody, quite frankly. It, so I see this, I see, okay, they just put, the Peel Air Force put, you know, 12 aircraft out there. They put 10 aircraft. When was the last time they saw 100 aircraft in the, Peel Air Force, in the air at the same time? They actually talk about can they sustain combat operations? And every answer that I see is no, they can't do it. So they can do it for a few days, a few days. They're working 18-hour days for a maintenance crew on a single airframe. And that airframe only flies once every three days. What if that airframe has to fly every day for two weeks? How is it going to affect the pilots, the maintenance, the crews? Nobody talks about that. I read this all the time in our Air Force magazine, in the Daily Report, about all the problems the U.S. Air Force has with this and this. But nobody ever takes and does a balance and says the Peel Air Force has the same basic problems. And I think that's the problem. Is we're building them up and building them constantly, but we, do, we need to balance that out and look at them and look at us. I, when I was doing uh, a project, I reached out to some friends in the U.S. Air Force and said, what does a U.S. Air Force squadron commander think about on a daily basis? It's about how to fly sorties, but he also thinks about his people. But when the U.S. Air Force writes about the Peel Air Force, all they talk about is the hardware. They don't just build on the technology. Look at the people side of it. And I think that's a real key issue for us. And to just follow up, um, I think both Ken and Gerald are right, specifically with the multilateralizing of the issue. I would like to see, at least whether it's happening and we don't know it, but a more public coordination with the United States, Taiwan, and Japan on this issue, since we saw earlier in May, uh, the Chinese did a big exercise to Taiwan's east, and it affected both the Japanese ADIS and Taiwan's ADIS at the same time. So now Japan's starting to release some of the similar reports as Taiwan's MND is, but seeing some sort of coordination on these sides, like the there was one, a couple reports that the MND put out when U.S. aircraft actually flew into Taiwan's ADIS and then it didn't do it again. And well, was that the only time since 2020 that a U.S. aircraft flew within Taiwan's ADIS? I'm going to probably not. So finding ways to make the coordination much more public and also just making more information public. There's so much more that the Taiwan or the United States knows about these operations that they're not releasing. And if they release it, what could the think tank research community do with that information? Like with very limited information, with the chapter we're writing, reports that other people have been writing, we're able to make a lot of um, recommendations and conclusions. And if we get more information out there from these uh, reports, what else could we find that maybe the military or maybe the U.S. government isn't able to. So just more coordination and more information would be very helpful. And it may not deter China from conducting these operations in Taiwan's ADIS, but having that, at least that trilateral front, will at least show that Japan and the United States are on Taiwan's side, and that will make the Beijing think twice before making a strike on Pratas. Jinmin, Matsu, or even Taiwan, because the more that the more that China has doubts about the resolute nature of the commitment from the United States and Japan, Beijing will think twice, and that's what we want. We want Beijing to not have that confidence that an invasion would be successful. And right now, 
there is some levels of coordination and these reports are great, but I would just like to see a lot more um, being done. Really great points. And I think from my perspective, one of the things that we can really do is really shore up the U.S. side of the equation here, right? Things like buying new aircraft that could potentially get to this location and conduct some sort of support operation, whether it be against the PLA Air Force or whether it be supporting the Taiwan's airspace. If we don't have those aircraft and we don't have the logistics tail to actually support that kind of operation, then we're fundamentally failing to deter China in that area. And I think Jerry brought up the really good point of we do have things like ACE, Agile Combat Employment, that we're trying to develop to get there. But if you look at those maps that Ken pointed you all to earlier, you'll notice the distance between Taiwan and Fuzhou is essentially the distance between Los Angeles and San Diego. It's not far. It's about a two-hour drive. Obviously, there's no land to drive on, but it, it demonstrates how close it is. And so when we're looking at our access into the area and really even more broadly, the Indo-Pacific, that is absolutely critical. And we saw even earlier this year, China was trying to push out that buffer zone that they have by doing things like talking with the Solomon Islands and coming up with an agreement with them. And even more recently, I believe there was an effort to bring even more smaller islands into some sort of defense agreement. By pushing that barrier back, that means that fundamentally we as the United States have to operate at longer ranges, which requires even more of that logistics tails. You know, think things like heavy airlift, things, things like tankers, um, things like having bases that we can actually secure or be able to stand up bases quick enough to make certain landing zones for our planes so that they have uh, divert options, right? All of these things are really important. And one of the most important things that I think that Jerry also brought up a little bit here is that Taiwan's overall defense concept is fundamentally aimed at sinking an invasion fleet halfway through the strait. And this is the interesting thing here too, is that Taiwan develops anti-ship missiles and anti-air missiles domestically. And they're actually fairly robust technologies. But the heavy emphasis is actually on the anti-ship missiles as opposed to the anti-air. I wonder why there's the tendency for the Taiwanese politicians to buy those large platforms that they can point to, like iron on the ramp or submarines in the sea, as opposed to picking up on that concept of developing and buying more of the smaller systems that they can field. And I think there is now a trend in that direction because they realize just those big platforms are too expensive. But it's certainly something that Taiwan's best options are to first and foremost make sure they can defend themselves and buy enough time for the U.S. to reach them and add their support to that effort. Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Aerospace Advantage, but I want to say thank you again, Ken, Jerry, and Tom, for taking the time to speak with us today. And congratulations on putting together a great chapter to help all of us better understand what is happening in the skies over the Taiwan Strait. Thank you. I hope that the things that we talk about and write about are helpful to the audience and to get you to think about some new possibilities that are coming down the road. Thank you. Yeah, no, thanks a lot, Dan. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm excited for the chapter to be published and uh, thanks for everyone for listening. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. 
If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.